verses 9 through 11. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not restrained my lips, O Lord. Thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let not thy loving kindness and thy truth, I'm sorry, let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh gracious God, what mercy you have extended to us in giving us Christ. Oh God, we are poor, vile sinners. We deserve nothing but your judgment in, in hell, but yet you've given mercy, God. You've given grace. Even your only sons, what, what, what blessing that we cannot even understand the fullness of it. Yet we have this great hope in Christ. Oh, may Christ be lifted up tonight. May each uh, hear, Lord God, according to your will. Would you open ears, Lord God. Give me clearness in my speech. Direct our paths this evening in this study. Give us the understanding in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we could say that we took a little detour from Psalm 40 last week, but I think that it is an important subject. We, we looked at the importance of, if you remember, just for one minute, we looked at the importance of expository preaching and, and hermeneutics. Do you know what, um, does anybody know what hermeneutics is? It sounds like a difficult word, but it's a very important topic. It's the art and science of how to interpret the Bible. Hermeneutics, the art and science of how to interpret the Bible. It's H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. There's a, there's a good, there's a helpful, um, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, Vera. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. Um, it's the art and science of how to interpret the Bible. Um, so we, so we, looked at the, uh, we looked at that last week, and, and we saw the close relationship, right, between hermeneutics, or the proper interpretation of the Bible, and and then understanding how we're listening to preaching, right? Because all of us, I think, in the day we live, we're listening to preaching um, online and other places. And we have to, our ear has to be sharp to what we're listening to. And having a good, what we call hermeneutic, a good way to interpret the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't lead us into some mystical and emotional experience to initially interpret the Bible. But instead, the Holy Spirit leads us to understand that the Bible interprets itself. That's the most important principle, right? The Bible interprets the Bible. And we didn't talk about this last week. Can I just say one more thing? I didn't, I didn't want to get too much into this. There's so much you can say about it. Maybe we can go for hours. But can I just say one more thing about that we didn't mention last week? And that is that the obscure passages in Scripture, very important hermeneutical principle, the obscure passages of Scripture are interpreted by the clear passages of Scripture. In other words, there's, there's oftentimes you read the Bible and it's obscure. It's not really clear what it's saying, right? Or it can mean ten different things. 
Well, the clear passages, understanding what is clear in Scripture, will give us understanding of what is obscure. And I say that because we often do it backwards, right? <laughs> Matt, it's especially a tendency with young people, is we want, I know that because I was once young, believe it or not, um, that we want to know all the obscure things first. Tell me what this means. Tell me what that means. Tell me what this means. But, um, well, let's learn the clear things first, right? Let's learn what the Bible clearly teaches, and then we might be able to understand revelation or other things that would be more difficult to understand. So matching scripture with scripture is the primary means by which we understand the scripture. Did you get that? Matching scripture with scripture is the primary means by which we understand scripture. Now, once we have the proper interpretation, which can be a wrestling match at times, and we don't, doesn't mean we have a perfect interpretation. But once we, we use the means that God has given us, or, or we purpose to know the original intent of the writer, there's another huge, there's another huge principle. We must purpose to learn the original intent of the writer. Then that content or message is applied to our hearts, right? Once we know the interpretation, then it is applied to our hearts. And how we live changes. And at that point, our understanding of the Bible becomes practical and emotional and experiential. Do you see that? Now, once we understand it, you get that? Now it's applied to our hearts. Now it changes us. Right now it's practical. But we can't do that up front. We first have to understand the, the interpretation. It, it, um, if we bypass the proper tools of Bible interpretation and go right to the application, this is a warning, if we, if we bypass the tools of Bible interpretation and go right to the application, we can end up with a very misguided and even heretical or damning understanding of Scripture while being fully convinced that we think we know what it says. Do you see that? Bible interpretation is very important. I think it's Right up there with Bible reading. As much as we read our Bibles, we should be learning how to uh, interpret the Bible. Um, and there are some simple uh, classes for that. There's a man who does a, um, a, a class called Herman Who. <laughs> you know, look that up. If you, if you Googled Herman Who and you put hermeneutics next to it, that class would probably come up. Um, and he does a good job, I think, of giving you some basic principles on how to interpret the Bible. And really, every, every one of us should be doing that in some way. Um, one preacher says, and I agree with him, but I don't think I always do this. He says that we should put a hermeneutical principle in every sermon we preach. So in every sermon I preach, I should be teaching you how to interpret the Bible on your own. And then over time, you guys will, you know, have that skill uh, mastered, or at least have it down to where you can... Uh, this guy was looking at the window. Um, <laughs> at least you can um, interpret the Bible as God gives you grace. So when the author wrote the book, he had specific concept or idea in his mind. And if we can't arrive at his ideas or what he meant when he wrote it, then we don't understand the text, no matter what our experience or how good it feels or whatever special gifts we may think that we have. Preaching starts with an accurate understanding of the Bible. And thank the Lord that he said that he would send the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. And that truth must first be realized 
in an objective way. And then it becomes subjective. You see that? It's first objective. It's first, what I mean by objective is, it's first outside of me. You see, it's not what happened to me or how I experience it or how I feel. Now, certainly the Bible affects us in those ways, right? But it must first be objective. It must first be understanding it for the meaning of what it says. Then it's properly applied to our heart and how we live and how we feel and how, how we're operating and how it's applied to us. You see how the objective must come before the subjective. But you have to have both. Certainly, we don't want the Bible just to be objective. We don't want it to just be raw information, right? We're not here just for information. But we want God to change our lives, right? And we want, but that can't happen if we don't have the proper understanding of what the text is saying. Or even more scary than that, certain things can change us in how we live, but it's not biblical, right? And so the meaning is so important. And, and I know we spent a lot of time talking about it last week, but I think, and like I said, I can go on with that more now, but I think we should move on. Unless anybody wanted to add anything to that before we move on. Well, objective, subjective, and also social. Yeah. How we like interact with the people that are doing my social media. That's right. I mean, the Bible teaches us the objective of the world, the social of the world, and the subjective. Right. So, yeah, in, um, in that subjective, there's uh, inward and outward. Which we can talk a lot about that, but in other words, we're changed inwardly first, right? The fruit of the Spirit being developed in the Christian, we're becoming more Christ like. And as we're changed inwardly, then we're changed outwardly. Our behavior changes, how we interact with other people changes. changes how we relate to other people. Because if you look in Romans 12, which is, I think, one of the premier chapters on understanding of sanctification, four out of the five relationships, three out of the five relationships there, or should I say three of the five ways that we gauge our sanctification is how we relate to other people. How we relate to other people is huge. So we can see, though, moving on, we can see the... Um, Unless anybody else has any questions about the interpretation, that's such an important subject. Like I said, I wouldn't mind spending a few weeks on that. Um, I can use some sharpening up on it myself, too. There's some principles we can learn, but that'll be in the future. So we can see the activity of, of the one in the passage, right? Back to Psalm chapter 40, is preaching. And the one who is doing the preaching, and this is all in our handout, is David, who, but David represents clearly in this passage the Lord Jesus, as we looked at in verses 5 and 7, three weeks ago, or, or like we said last week, Jesus Christ is the great preacher, right? He is the great preacher, and all true preachers are preaching under Christ, as is, as I said last week, the preacher boy. And Jesus Christ is our content in preaching 
and in our content, in our in our hermeneutic as we're studying the Bible, and 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 we are preaching through the power of Christ. We're preaching Christ as the content and through His power. That is where we ended last week, and and that brings us to our third question in our handout, which is what is He preaching? And I don't think we'll get past this question tonight, especially now since we already spent. 20 or 25 minutes getting to this point, but that's okay. Um, what was the message that is being preached? Um, and he says, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. So the content of the message is righteousness. And isn't, isn't it interesting that the first preacher mentioned in the Bible is, remember we talked about last week? Um, Noah. Noah is the first preacher mentioned in the Bible. Um, and he, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, right? In second, in second Peter 2 5. There's an important hermeneutical principle. When the Bible directly interprets itself, the Bible is always right. So the Bible in second Peter 2 5 tells us who Noah was. And it says, but save Noah the preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Yes, he must have been a good carpenter and builder. He built the ark, but his main job was actually preaching. It wasn't building, it was preaching. That he was a preacher of righteousness, just as we could say that Moses, I think it's pretty clear, Moses was a preacher of righteousness. David was a preacher of righteousness, as it is in our text before us. This is David speaking as he represents Christ. Also in our text, the Lord Jesus clearly was a preacher of righteousness. Certainly the Apostle Paul was a preacher of righteousness. It was one of his favorite words to use. If you diagnose Paul's writings in the New Testament, you'll find it was one of his favorite words to use, was righteous or righteousness. How would you say it by Interesting, re reluctantly. I would say he was a preacher of righteousness, but Jeremiah, did you have a hand up too? Did you, did you want to say something? All right. So, he likes to tell Paul, he likes to tell Paul, I would say Elijah was a preacher of righteousness too, yes. Absolutely, because I would say that there's a pattern, right, that, that a preacher of righteousness is not just a select preacher, but a preacher of righteousness is every true preacher of Christ is a preacher of righteousness. Right? Those who follow in the steps of Christ and in the apostles are preachers of righteousness. Right? But this begs the question, what is a preacher of righteousness? Right? We, we don't have the content of Noah's sermons, but the verses that immediately surround them, why don't you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2? I think the verses that immediately surround those verses give us some insight into this idea of preaching righteousness. Uh, if you're familiar with 2 Peter 2 and 3, they're not easy chapters to swallow. They're, they're, um, Peter is denouncing the false teachers here in 2 Peter 2, 2 and 3. Actually, if you, if you were to read Jude, maybe some of us are more familiar with Jude, you would see that um, Jude is almost copy and pasted from some of Second Peter, isn't it? Um, and you'll see very similar passages in 
uh, Jude mentioned some of this here we're going to read, but let's read 4 through 6 in Second Peter 2. For if God spared not the angels that sinned not, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, there it is, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So this passage is clearly about the judgment of God. If you were to read it in context, you would see that undoubtedly it's about the judgment of God. Noah preached. I would say Noah preached that the people should repent and, and come into the ark, right? He come into the ark when the judgment of God came, which was in that time in the form of the flood. Or God is righteous, or, or he upholds his holy law, and those who openly violate his law will be judged. Um, I found this good definition, I think it's a good definition, in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. If you ever want a good dictionary to look up words besides the Bible dictionary, I think that 1828 Webster's Dictionary is a good dictionary, and it says, righteousness, as used in scripture and theology, in which it is chiefly used, is nearly equivalent to holiness, comprehending holy principles and affections of the heart, and conformity of life to divine law, and includes all we call justice, honesty, and virtue, with holy affections. In short, it is true religion. I think that definition is helpful because in short, he's saying all true religion is found in this word righteousness or or conformity to what God says. Um, thus, we can assume that God is righteous, right? God is holy. Holiness and righteousness are really brothers. They're, they're closely related. And they're, um, so God is holy. God is righteous. Those who preach righteousness preach holiness right we can definitely call again moses a preacher of righteousness because moses was a preacher of god's holy law and god's law is at the heart of righteousness or or holiness we can call the major and minor prophets of the old testament preachers of righteousness because they were preachers of god's coming judgment yet woven into their messages of judgment was the message of redemption that we talked about last week, that this redemption, that God was sending a solution. He was sending the Messiah. It's amazing. In some parts of Jeremiah you go through, and this, they're so heavy, just so filled with judgment, and then suddenly he'll, he'll say something and give this, this moment of hope showing that God will redeem his people. That God, uh, there's this story of redemption woven through the judgment in these preachers of righteousness, or there is hope in God sending the prescribed remedy for sin. The Lord Jesus preached that he is the exclusive way to heaven and that every other way leads to hell. I think that the first six chapters of Romans gives us a very clear picture of what the content of a sermon of a preacher of righteousness looks like. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you've heard me teach before, you've heard me say this, but he redundantly 
use the word righteous or righteousness in those first chapters of Romans. Right? How many times? 46 times in the first six chapters of Romans, the apostle uses the word righteous or righteousness. That's a lot. So can righteousness be equivalent to evangelism? Yeah. Abraham was the father of righteousness. So, you know, the first evangelism. Uh, Job, uh, it, uh, Job is blameless and upright. A man who feared God and turned away from evil. Right, that would be the definition of righteous, yeah. Um, but go to Romans chapter 1. I know you're probably familiar with that passage. We've been looking at it on uh, on Saturdays. But there in 16 and 17, I think there's a helpful passage there. Yeah, I think an evangelist is definitely a preacher of righteousness, uh, preacher of God's holiness and man's need for God's forgiveness in Christ. Um, but it's interesting in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So therein, the therein points back to the gospel. Therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. So yeah, the, a righteous preacher is a preacher of the gospel, and the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Through Jesus Christ being the just means by which God provides forgiveness for his people. Do you see that? Righteousness is fulfilled in Christ because he is the just means by which God can forgive us. That when Christ died, he took the punishment that we who are in Christ deserve, and God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, and that those who remain in their sin will fall under God's eternal judgment, and those who have faith in Christ will be justified because of Christ's righteous actions at the cross, right? His righteousness in fulfilling the gospel. And uh, look in Romans 3. I, I just can't not read Romans 3, 24 through 26. When we talk about the righteousness of God in the gospel, because here he mentions the righteousness of God several times in just three verses um, in terms of the gospel. And this is really when the Paul gets to the gospel. Up until this point in Romans, he's not really referring to the gospel. He's referring to sin and judgment. And now he gets to the gospel in verse 24, and he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, for what reason? To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that, he, that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, there is again his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So there you see that word, propitiation, in verse 25. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. But it's the same word actually used for the mercy seat, or Christ is our atonement, is what it means, our atonement for sin, right? By, by grace through faith, we are, we are believing in Christ because he is the atonement, the legal payment for our sins, right? Jesus Christ has satisfied every 
just demand of God, and now God remains just or righteous, right, or completely upright in justifying wicked sinners. If God just arbitrarily said, well, I'm going to forgive you like the, like the Muslims say, I'm going to forgive you because of whatever, God at that point becomes unrighteous. He becomes unjust. But in Christ, satisfying the just demand of God's righteousness, God remains just and the justifier of sinners. That um, It's like a judge. He can't just let somebody go because they say they're sorry, right? If, if someone commits a crime, that crime has to be justly atoned for, has to be justly paid for. And once the crime is justly paid for, the crime can't be reached. He, the man can't be judged again, right? He already paid the crime for the crime. And it's the same with Christ. Once Christ has paid for our sin, we can't pay again. That would be what they call double jeopardy. You can't be paid twice um, for the same crime. It would make God unjust in the other direction. So God is righteous in Christ being the just atonement for sin. Praise his holy name. And this is what which you were saying I have some family members that jump and they use that first the way that was and they believe our physical death pay that wage of sin. Now Harmon Lucas would have to compare that with other passages as God talks about death and our payment of our sin that we're still accountable. So my death, even though it says the of sin of death, and and they believe, mm. okay, because I died now, I don't get charged with none of them sins. Mm. I see that wage. But they're not being using harm to find out the way what that is. What does that, that mean? Amen. Amen. It's a good point. Amen. So man cannot be a true creature unless he is a creature of righteousness. And we can sift through every prophet in the Bible and you will find not the not one that doesn't start his message of righteousness with people's need for to repent of their sin or to turn to Christ. The Lord Jesus was a preacher of righteousness. In Matthew 5.17, the Lord said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. There is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of righteousness. Right? They accused the Lord of being antinomian, the same thing they accused Paul of him at the end of Romans 5, where they accused him of wanting to get rid of the law. Right? They said to Christ, you want to get rid of the law of Moses. And this was the furthest thing from Christ's purpose. His purpose was to fulfill the law or to live and be in perfect compliance with God's law. This is so important to understand in our theology. That Jesus Christ was the only man to ever live in perfect obedience to God's law. Right? And this made him the only man that had a perfect righteousness. The Lord preached a standard of righteousness never heard before. No other man would preach the standard of righteousness that Christ preached, because if they did, they would condemn their own selves. But Christ preached it because he had a perfect righteousness. He was perfect in thought, word, deed, and motive in every aspect of a man. Christ was perfect, and he fulfilled the law. 
And by fulfilling the law, he was able to be the just means by which we are forgiven. Matt? Translated steadfastness, or or God is faithful 
in keeping all of his covenant promises. For not one of his promises will fall to the ground. So when God made his promise to, to Adam, and he gave him a law and said, if you use the trust tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That was conditional. That was, there was two parties involved. Adam could not eat of the tree, and if Adam obeyed God, God would bless him, right? Adam sinned. He fell under God's curse. This is so important to understand, Jeremiah. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is huge. If we don't understand Genesis 3, we're missing everything. So in Genesis 3, Adam sinned, right, and fell under God's curse. And at that point, he was not able to obey God. And so his posterity, so his children, are not able to obey God. You see that, Jeremiah? We were born in this condition of sin. My mom didn't have to teach me how to fight with my brother, as I always tell people, right? I already knew how to fight with my brother. <laughs> Because it's in my sinful nature to do that. You don't have to be taught how to lie. You already do it by nature. You have to be told not to lie. You have to be told not to do the wrong thing. Most of the commandments are all in the negative, right? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Because God's assuming that we're already doing them because we are, right? So when Adam sinned, he could not keep God's law. So now God's promises are... Uh, what we, what we call monergistic, they're, they're one-sided. God promises and God fulfills them. God keeps his covenant promises with his people, and God's doing it all. <laughs> and, and that's the idea. God is faithful. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 15, uh, 13, it says that if we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. So regardless of us not being faithful, God can never deny his faithfulness. And that's in 2 Timothy. Yeah, yeah. Amen. How about Acts 13? Let's look at a couple of verses there. I got 13, uh, 32, 33. Um, we get into some uh, reform principles here when you get into. Um, idea of God, the one-sided covenant, that God fulfills all of his promises to his people. Acts 13, 32, and 33. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again. And at it as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten. The God upholds his most solemn or majestic promise to save his people through Jesus Christ. Or God is righteous, or, or God is true to his word, or faithful in himself. The faithfulness of God, a preacher of righteousness, is a preacher of the faithfulness of God. That our hope in our salvation is not in my faithfulness, right? It's not in how much I can believe. It's in the faithfulness of God, right? A, faith, a preacher of righteousness is preaching 
God's faithfulness, that, that God is the quintessence or the embodiment of faithfulness. And all his promises are yea and amen, as the apostle, apostle would say. Or every one of his promises will come to pass. And thereby we can be fully confident in what God has promised in Christ in his word. And there are two powerful verses. If you look in Titus chapter 1, the apostle Paul begins his letter to Titus. And he writes these two verses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, in verses 2 and 3, Titus is right after 2 Timothy. And it says, um, Titus 1, 2 and 3, In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due time manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Well, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. God has, in times past, or I'm sorry, in, in before the world began, right? Before the world began in verse 2. But this is an eternal hope that God has decreed these things to be, right? And God's decrees cannot be denied. And and has manifested it through his word in time, in verse 3, through preaching, through preaching, I would say, righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And uh, and John Gill made this helpful comment about Titus 1-2. He said, and I quote, eternal life is a promise as so free grace and not by the works of the law, which is inconsistent with the promise. It is the promise of God who is faithful to his word and cannot lie, being the God of truth that can neither deceive nor be deceived. You see that the hope we have is that God is faithful. A preacher of righteousness preaches the faithfulness of God. We can be confident of our salvation in Christ because God is faithful. He is righteous or he cannot lie. And this promise was made before the world began, the text says. For it is the eternal decree of God. And if God makes an oath, and if God meets the terms of that oath through Christ, then certainly God is faithful, and he will uphold his promise to save his people. And we can stand confident on the faithfulness or the righteousness in Christ. So first, a, a, a preacher of righteousness is a preacher of God's faithfulness. Secondly, a, a preacher of righteousness preaches salvation. Preaches salvation. God is righteous. I, I could say in, in in rescuing His people. Right in Acts four twelve, there's no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved, and He's referring there to the name of Jesus Christ. At the, but but at the heart of the of salvation, at the heart of salvation is righteousness. Or we already went through it in Romans, in the first chapters of Romans there, in, in verses 17 and 18 that we read in 23, 24 through 26, you see that in this gospel is righteousness, or salvation and righteousness are so closely related, or we preach, I would say, an imputed righteousness in Romans 4 and 5. The apostle used the word imputed, I think, five or six times. And the principle is best explained. Look in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. 
I think is where we find the best explanation of imputed righteousness and salvation and imputed righteousness. Boy, they're so closely linked in the Apostle Paul's teaching. And he's not just getting this from the wind. He's getting this from God and from the Scripture. And in verses 18 through 19 of Romans 5, it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, who's that one? Adam. So by thereby for the offense of Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the one is Jesus Christ. So even so, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Christ, many shall be made righteous. Do you see that? There's, there's Genesis 3 again. Brings us back to Genesis 3. That through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That one man was Adam. But that's the imputed sin of Adam that we were all born with. Right? Jeremiah, remember we talked about just a minute ago that we're born with this problem, right? We're all born with this sin problem. It came from our father. We all have the same great-grandfather. You know his name is? Adam. We all have the same. Actually, nobody on earth is further from anybody else than seventh cousin, they say. So you're my cousin. You're my seventh cousin. Nobody's further than my seventh cousin. Because we're all, you can trace everybody back to Adam. To that, and now we were born with that imputed sin. We're born in Adam's sin. But now, through Christ's imputed through his perfect righteousness, and by faith in him, his righteousness, his perfection, is accounted to those who believe. So we're all sinners by imputation of Adam's sin, and now those who believe are declared righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We were sinners before we ever sinned, and now by faith in Christ, we're righteous before we're ever truly righteous in that sense. This is an amazing reality because the believer can rejoice that in the courtroom of heaven we are accounted as righteous as Christ. For his perfection is our perfection. For God puts Christ's perfect righteousness to our account. There's two parts to this. We have to get both parts. Look in Colossians 2. Let's look at the first part. There's two parts to salvation. There's two parts to this righteousness. And really, we, we, we have to get two parts, and I'm, I'm saddened by how many people miss the second part, and it either costs them their salvation, or if they are saved, it costs them much joy in their salvation. Um, in Colossians 2.14, we see the first part of this, what I want you to see, is it says, blotting out, in Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Or we could say all our sin was nailed to the cross, right? Or we had a list of accusations against us that were true, that could stretch from one side of the country to the other, and all of those offenses were wiped clean, and we were left with a clean slate. But now, that same document is filled with all the perfections of Christ. 
or our judicial or legal standing in heaven. You see, that's the second part. The first part is that Christ died for our sins, and we have this legal atonement for our sins. But the second part is that we have this judicial or legal standing in heaven of perfection. And that, for two righteous reasons. One, Jesus Christ took upon himself the legal punishment that we deserve, and thereby all our sins and transgressions have been absolved or acquitted or legally atoned for or justly paid for. And the second righteous reason is that we have this perfect standing in heaven because Jesus Christ's righteousness has been imputed or put to our account. It has been put to our account. Do you see the two sides? You have the negative and the positive. The negative is the fact that Christ has took our sin and justly paid for them. The positive is that his righteousness has been put to the believer's account. Praise his holy name. Matt? I don't. Do, 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 I'll read it for the recording's sake. I'll ask you to read it, but I'll read it. Second Corinthians 5.21, which... You think I would have read that? I, for the longest time, I claimed that as my favorite verse, and it probably still is my favorite verse. So, although I end up having a lot of favorite verses, but twenty-one of Second Corinthians five, for He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Wow, that that encapsulates the gospel, doesn't it? For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And uh, but but dear one, Second Corinthians five twenty one. But but I'm shocked that the majority of people who claim Christ as Savior know nothing of this glorious truth of the imputed righteousness of Christ. That I can I can be no more righteous. Follow me. I can be no more righteous in my legal standing before God than I can be right now because I am perfectly righteous. Because I have no hope in my own righteousness, but all our hope is in the righteousness or the perfections of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the connection between the righteous preacher and salvation in Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. This is so fundamental. It is so fundamental or extremely important to our understanding of salvation. Like I said, I think many might not be saved because they don't never come to this understanding. Or if they are saved, they're deprived of this great joy of knowing Christ's righteousness or knowing we're declared righteous. That's an important term. The word justification is defined as being declared righteous. It's not, it's not something subjective. I'm not declared righteous in heaven because I am righteous, right? I'm declared heaven and righteous I'm declared righteous in heaven because Christ is righteous, and his righteousness is put to my account. The apostles spent almost two whole chapters on this one point of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness has to do with our justification, and imparted righteousness has to do with our sanctification. Right? Or the apostles spent Romans 4 and 5 in explaining imputed righteousness or our legal righteousness or our objective righteousness. And now in Romans 6 and 7, he goes on to explain what I and others call imparted righteousness. And I think 
that has to do with our third point. That a preacher of righteousness is a preacher of God's loving kindness. These last two points are much shorter. I can get through them in just a few minutes. So a preacher of righteousness is a preacher. You see in back in Psalm 40 and verse 10, he preaches loving he preaches loving kindness. You see it on your outline, faithfulness, salvation, loving kindness is the fourth word. And the word could also be translated as mercy. We deserve God's judgment, but in Christ we have gotten mercy, or he has extended his loving kindness. Right? There is no love like this that God would go to such a great extent to satisfy his righteousness or justice in the giving of his son so that we can be saved. And this has affected us, follow me, this has affected us in a tangible way or in a way that we can see and feel. Right? It brings back to our point at the beginning that this is something subjective or our being, we're being made practically righteous. Or if we have truly been declared righteous, because of Christ's righteousness, our life will be different. Or the Holy Spirit will work a real and practical holiness into our lives. Because of God's loving kindness it is the impetus. It's the thing that's driving us, right? Like the Apostle said in Second Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels me. The loving kindness of God is compelling us, thrusting us into this life of holiness. Imparted righteousness does not make us any more righteous than our standing before God. God forbid that we would think that way. But it is the inevitable or inescapable consequence of being declared righteous in the courtroom of God. Again, for two reasons. One, because those who have been declared righteous in heaven have been made new creatures in Christ, or we are born again, and the whole of our being has changed, right? How we think, how we feel, how we talk, how we act has all been altered by the Holy Spirit's work in giving us what I would say a heart transplant, but by giving us that new motive to love Christ or to know his loving kindness, which brings us to our second reason why we have this changed life or why the changed life is inescapable, inescapable consequence of having the imputed righteousness of Christ. The Christian finds so much joy in knowing our righteous standing before God because of Christ that our greatest joy is obeying God. This explains the transformation of the Christian more than anything else. Right? Knowing our, our standing before God is perfect. That will propel us into a righteous life. It's the only thing that can propel us into a righteous and only life. Outside of that, our holiness is a facade. Our holiness is, I'm sorry to say, I think it's a sham, right? The loving kindness is what brings us into true holiness. The loving kindness of God, knowing in the gospel of Christ, in his righteousness that is imputed to us, in his righteousness, that, that through his righteousness he has paid for our sins, or him paying for our sin has satisfied God's righteousness, I should say. And also, 
Amen. What did the Lord say to Simon the Pharisee? He said, to him that is forgiven much, he will love much. And they said that for him that forgives little, is forgiven little, he will love much. Verse 13, he covered verse 14. Amen, amen. Our love for Christ is in direct proportion to understanding our sinfulness. And Christ dying in spite of our sinfulness. Right? So we are we are changed by God's love. The measure of our holiness can only be measured by our love for Christ. And our love for Christ will increase only when we realize that we are vile, wicked, no good sinners, but but we have been declared righteous because of Christ and only because of Christ. So we preach the faithfulness of God, the salvation of God in in Christ's righteousness and loving kindness of God. That we're transformed by this knowledge of Christ's righteousness. And fourthly and lastly, the righteousness, uh, the the righteous preacher, you see the word truth in Psalm 40, verse 10. Righteousness and truth are brothers, or they are closely related. Surely a preacher of righteousness is a preacher of uncompromised truth. A preacher of righteousness is a preacher of God's loving kindness and mercy, and a preacher of righteousness is a preacher of God's salvation. And God's faithfulness. There seems to me to be a progression. A progression when we when we declare the the God who is faithful to his promises, or the God who is faithful to his promises in the gospel, then comes salvation, and then we are saved, and then when we are saved, we know the overwhelming power of God's love and God's truth becomes more precious to us every day. We are preachers of truth. There's a lot you can say about preachers of truth. I mean, we can go on for a few weeks on talking about that, but I'll just leave it at that. Amen. Amen. And Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the light of Christ is the truth. Uh, And so praise his name. The end of verse 11, though, in Psalm uh, 40, verse 11, we'll save some of this for next week, but he says in Psalm 40, 11, I have... Not conceal thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. The, the loving kindness and the truth. There's the two. When, when, when John described Christ in John 1, he's full of grace and truth. Right? He's full of holiness and love. Grace and truth. And, and I think it's Psalm 85, 10 and 11. For time's sake, I'll just read it to you. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. But mercy and truth are met together in Christ. And this is what the preacher preaches. That nowhere on earth, that this is the problem with every religion, every false religion. They can't reconcile God's holiness and God's love. They can't reconcile God's righteousness and God's justice and his mercy. How can you righteous, how can you reconcile justice and mercy? You can't. If God is just, he must condemn all of us to hell. If God is merciful, then he's, he's, and he's not just, then he's a compromiser and makes God a sinner. And, and that's why he's somebody that comes to private question what is true. Mm. And there's so many. 
out here in the world keep asking the question. It's the search and what is truth. Yeah. And, but yet mercy and truth are, are only meet in Christ. God's justice and God's mercy only meet at one place, as they say, which is at the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ is the greatest display of God's holiness and God's wrath and God's justice. At the same time, it's the greatest display of God's love and mercy and kindness. And so love and justice or holiness meet at, at Christ, at the cross. It, it, it's the truth and love. Meet at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly a preacher of righteousness preaches both. He preaches the holiness of God, the justice of God, and he preaches the love of God and the mercy of God. And one cannot exist without the other. And uh, we can tend to go, we can become lopsided with one or the other. We can preach love, love, love with no justice, and our, we, we become lopsided in one direction. We can preach the wrath of God all the time and the justice of God because we're trying to correct everybody else who's going in the wrong direction, mostly in our culture. So we'll go lopsided the other direction. Will we not? Well, you know, I can remember before I got saved, all I knew about the crucifixion was a terrible way to They treated Christ terribly, he died terribly. No one never told me that the Father was putting our sin and that was really that was really tragic. I was doing that It wasn't him being nailed to the cross and being pierced at the top. Where, you know, so, so I was taught from a humanity thing, look mm-hmm. how they treat it now. But never taught the spiritual thing that, hey, he, he was he was taken on your skin. He was dying for you. That, that was the real tragedy. Yeah, and that's the pain that he suffered that we really can't understand, but we know, yeah, the real pain. I mean, he certainly suffered physically, but how much more he suffered spiritually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Can I finish with one last point? It is that, um, and I know I'm going over, but who was he preaching to? Let's just finish this. He was preaching to the great congregation. It says, and Matthew Henry describes the great congregation this way in, in Psalm 40 and verse 9. Because we looked at what is he doing? He's preaching. Who's he? Pre- who's preaching Christ? What is he preaching? Righteousness, which we just went over. And who is he preaching to? The great congregation. Matthew Henry says this. When Christ was here on earth, he preached to multitudes, thousands at a time. The gospel was preached both to Jews and Gentiles, to great congregations of both. End quote. Or we could say that the gospel call goes out to all men, women, and children. May this glorious truth of Christ, which is the message of righteousness, go into all the world, to the great congregation, to the multitudes of the world. Christ is worthy to be preached in all the world. And we pray that it goes out to the great congregation, this message of righteousness, this message of Christ, righteously taking or atoning for our sin and Christ living a perfect life and keeping the righteous one is our righteousness. We are fully right with God because of Christ, because of the Lord Jesus. And that is that message should should thrust us out to preach it to the, the great congregation, to the multitude, 
who, who need to hear it. And uh, praise the Lord, Christ who called him to himself through this message uh, of righteousness, through the preacher of righteousness. Praise his holy name. Who is Christ? But Christ called the preacher boys to preach um, now. Praise his name. And we all have that opportunity to speak the gospel, right? In that sense, we're all preachers of righteousness uh, to speak his gospel. Amen. Does anybody have anything to add? Praise the Lord. Um, may we uh, be preachers of righteousness. May we have discernment in our Bible interpretation to discern preachers of righteousness. As there's so many preachers out there today and so many avenues that they can get their message out, may, may we understand the preachers of righteousness are those who are preaching by the power of Christ and for his glory. Praise his name. So let's uh, let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious truth that Jesus Christ was a preacher of righteousness. and He raises up men under him to preach righteousness. And oh, Lord, you raise up each one of your saints to speak of your righteousness. And that context, we're all preachers of righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. And Oh, might we revel in the righteousness of Christ and that, Lord Jesus, you have done it all and made this great truth motivate us to go out to the world, oh God. So sad it is to see them just stewing in their sin and having no concern for their eternal souls, Lord, and they'll end up in hell forever. Oh, Lord, might, might Christ be preached to them and might we weep for them and with them that they would turn even today, Lord, work in hearts. Send us forth to preach to the great congregation this great message of Christ's righteousness, we pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.